you know what? It's okay to think you're smarter than an NFL team, and anyone trying to sway you off of thinking a certain thing about a player or something to do with your fantasy team by trying to shame you into the arrogance of making decisions that the NFL maybe didn't, should just shut up and go try knitting or something. Do you have the time to listen to me grind? Take down the film watchers and learn some at once. I don't know where this idea came from. Yes, I do. It makes really great content sounding stuff. But the idea that you can not do better than an NFL team or you're just, you're just thinking you're smarter than an NFL team is just trying to shame someone into agreeing with what that person says. But if that person is saying something, then they are investing their own opinion into football. Just having an opinion about sports is inherently the same act of arrogance of not thinking the a team should have drafted a player over another player or one player is better, according to your ranks, than literally anyone else who plays football. And I mention that because I'm about to re- talk about my running back ranks and how I come to an idea of how to rank players, which is the same act of arrogance of thinking anything about sport that may go against what an NFL team did. I have this guy ranked in the top five. The NFL left him undrafted because I'm just having fun. Like, I don't know, maybe knit? Knit is the only thing where I can think, or some other activity where you don't have to have an opinion to enjoy it. Although it feels like everything requires an opinion for you to enjoy it. So maybe just sit in a room quietly, letting the world and reality wash over you for you do not want to commit the sin of having the arrogance to have an opinion. Or maybe address the point. Just a thought. Sorry, that phrase has always annoyed me and it always comes up around rookie time. Like, don't think you're smarter than an NFL team. Well, shush. Maybe just let me have my fun and have my own opinions on what I think of these players or what I think NFL teams should do because I am having fun talking about that with my friends. And if you don't like it, you can literally go anywhere else. Like, just turn two degrees on the internet and you're talking to a whole different group of people. That's fine. We like fantasy football. Maybe hush. Anyway... Because there are some things we can know, whether NFL teams' results or decisions reflect those, there are some things that can seem to be consistently true. For example, I don't like number go green analysis, which is what I've actually recorded this podcast three times. Once I accidentally deleted the whole thing. Second time, I decided I didn't like the direction I was going. Third time, I'm just kind of riffing, if you can't tell. Um, But I want to talk about some things that we know we can use in running back ranks. Knowing that it will not be perfect, but it's an insight that can be consistently better than 50% at getting us an idea of how good a player is. Now, the luck with running backs is that we are consistently and effectively good at ranking running backs. And this is part of because we're not arrogant. We actually rather strongly follow NFL draft capital because it is the strongest and most significant signal. The only thing that seems to have additional signal, like we can can add it to what NFL teams do, is some level of understanding how good or productive they were in college. And so I invest a lot of time in trying to understand some level of what measures or what ranks how good or productive players were in college to try and combine it with the really important information that is what decisions NFL teams have done. 
and based on our conclusions of the last, well, I've been doing it five or six years, but also going back to a 20-year data history, seem to suggest is that NFL teams' draft capital, largely a large portion of that is opportunities players are likely to get to display how good they are, which we can hopefully find some signal of what they were doing in college. And whether that's watching the tape or trying to drill through numbers to gain some kind of significant description of who is good and who is bad compared on a larger sample size, either of those is fine, but they are, in fact, all opinions. Some modifying factors. Some things I think we should take into account while forming our own opinion, which are always going to be flawed, and these are my ranks are also not the answer. They're just the best I have. They're information for you to take on. I was just listening to the Dynasty Dummies Hootenanny, which you, de you should definitely go and check out. And I think Zach and Jay might do a great job of explaining where they think their rank or film grades should fit into your process. This is just where we are at. These are ideas. This is information. But you should definitely go form your own opinion because we're all trying to, again, have fun and have an opinion on the coulda, woulda, shoulda of this game that we enjoy being fans of. Um, so go listen to them say it, because that's, that's how I feel. There you go. I don't think these ranks are definitive. I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to give you an idea of where I'm at. And this is basically rankings of their production measurables compared on a historical basis to other NFL prospects. And the draft is going to affect a lot of that af after it happens, after, obviously, which is why I have both pre- and post-draft ranks. But some things I think we should keep in mind is that number go green analysis, this idea that if you are more productive in a certain statistic, you are therefore that much better than everyone else, is very hard to take out of statistical ways of developing an opinion of whether a player has been productive or good in college. But it is necessary. Just because you are further over the average line does not mean you are that much quantifiably better than another prospect. We know this, um, just because Deuce Vaughn had 3.1 adjusted yards per team pass attempt, and Bijan Robinson had 2.5, and Jameer Gibbs had 2.0, doesn't mean we rank it Deuce Vaughn, Bijan Robinson, or Jameer Gibbs. Like, that's not 1, 2, and 3, because of a particular stat being further over that line in a stat that has some signal to NFL success, or measuring how good a player was in college in their best year as a running back, Right? We take into account context. Now, some of that context would be yards after contact. Deuce Vaughn had 3.0 yards after contact in his best season, the very same season, whereas Bajon Robinson had 4.2 and Jameer Gibbs had 3.4. So we reorganized based on that. And Deuce Vaughn also had a lower looseness rating, significantly than both. Also, finally, we find out how we rank players. I, I don't even think that is the full answer. The fact that Deuce Vaughn is playing his best season at Kansas State in the Big 12, I think, is different than Bajon Robinson playing at Texas in the Big 12 for his best season. I think it's different than Jameer Gibbs playing the SEC for Alabama. I don't think being further over a line, the threshold analysis we've gotten used to, is a great way to evaluate players. I think it's a good way to try to develop an understanding of what each and individual stat is telling you about how a player played in college. And we can compare it historically if it has some signal, like all three of those do when you're looking at the best season of a running back's career going into from college going into the NFL. Like adjusted yards per team pass attempt, yards after contact, and the looseness rating has some utility when you look at R-squared testing. They have some 
probability that they have an actual effect or uh, they're actually telling you something about what should happen to them in the NFL. But all of these are relatively small signals. They just have some signal, which is better than most college stats. And so we could use them to develop an understanding of what a player did in college. But it's not those who did best at a stat versus those who did worst at a stat, because we take it all into account, which is why we try to develop an opinion of what a stat is telling us. So adjusted yards per team pass attempt sounds complex, and the Dynasty Dummies had a few things to say about overly complex statistics. But while its acronym is long, its concept is simple. That's why I like it better than a lot of the more advanced metrics, like a looseness rating, or yards after contact per attempt. Because despite the effort in trying to collect something like yards after contact, it literally takes film scouting and someone noting where contact took place and yards that occurred after it, yards, uh, yards per team pass attempt is just dividing a player's yards by the overall team's offense, the number of times that the teams attempt to make a play. So you're adjusting their yards production based on the size of the overall offense. Because if you get a thousand yards when the team only has 20 attempts, or if you get a thousand yards versus the team having 200 attempts, that says something quantifiably different about how involved you are in that offense and how effective you were at generating yards on that size of offense. Is it still easily comparable to another player on another team? No, but it is more comparable than just looking at their yards or just looking at their yards after contact or looseness rating or anything else. It's doing a very specific thing, saying how much of a team's offense are they relative to how the size of their offensive production or the size of the offense's attempts. So while it has a nasty acronym, it's actually a relatively simple stat that actually has some signal that doesn't take a lot of complex or behind paywall data to actually figure it out. And from there, many people test per game. What if we just look at yards per game versus team attempts per game? What if we define per game a slightly different way and only look at games where the team actually won or lost or played against certain competition. Now, normally when we go down that road, I get a little hesitant because I think the smaller we shrink a sample size, the less effective a stat is. So that's the second thing I try not to do when trying to develop an opinion on whether a player is good or bad or was productive in college compared to a historic average of players that went on to do well in the NFL and trying to keep sample size as bigger as possible and understand what a stat is actually telling us about a player and understand that none of them rank them well but if taking in context especially once we combine it with draft capital we can get a slight edge on knowing how to rank players and again with running back the good news is we do a remarkably good job in fact the NFL does a remarkably good job It's actually somewhat difficult to debate whether the NFL does a better or worse job than fantasy football, especially when the NFL has different goals. But putting aside all the the complexities of what is doing well and what is doing bad in fantasy football, if you just want to follow draft capital, you can fairly effectively. Who's drafted first in the NFL draft? Who is drafted second? And it will be okay. I think the best we can do is try to have a good way of making a decision when things are less clear. Between Clyde Ebersolet and Jonathan Taylor from the first round back not so long ago, there was a great narrative spun that I 
bought into a little bit about Andy Reid running backs and the fact that this was a player the NFL teams seemed to like since they drafted him significantly high, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, with somewhat of a balanced role in rushing attempts and target share going into an offense that was highly effective at getting utility out of the running back. I still had Jonathan Taylor above Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, but it made me nervous going into the draft because it was a good argument. It was a good idea. It sounded right. But just looking at the production and how good or productive a player was in college relative to that historical comparison, Jonathan Taylor still stuck out rather significantly over someone like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. What I'm trying to do essentially is not rewrite draft capital, is make sure that I can have a way of knowing who is Aaron Jones, perhaps the one player outside the first three rounds that was a significant hit all the way back to to 2000 that I can point to, especially in the time that I've been playing. He was drafted in 2017. He in no way should have been taking after the third round, even coming from UTEP. I think it was a pretty interesting player. And was at 3.4 adjusted yards per team pass attempt and someone that I ranked significantly high in my rookie ranks that year. Does that mean the NFL teams got it wrong? No. What I'm trying to say is that my process tries to highlight players that I would not want to miss on if they hit, because we should know they're good based on how good they were in college. And relative to the place that he was playing, UTEP in the Cursor Conference, Aaron Jones should have still been interesting to us, despite his fifth-round draft capital. Now, that's not true for all big hits after the first three rounds, for example. Devontae Freeman, someone that I think should be of particular importance while looking at the 2024 class, had two top 12 seasons, four top 24 seasons, and five top 36 seasons coming from the 2014 class. That's, that's a class that predates our PFF data. That's a class that predates PFF data in general, actually, not just the data that I have. PFF data doesn't go back as far as us. But he had 1.7 adjusted yards per team pass attempt. Another reason I like this stat is because it doesn't require complex collection or complex paywall stats. You can always calculate something like adjusted yards per team pass attempt. Or just yards per team pass attempt if you prefer. He was at 1.7 adjusted yards per team pass attempt. The average for a player that goes on to have a top 12 season in the NFL is 2.3. So again, number go green analysis and threshold analysis or profiling falls down when you're looking for the players that you should want to find outside of what we should commonly suspect. Even going back to Arian Foster in 2009, one of my favorite outside the first three Ram running backs, in fact, just one of my favorite running backs in general ever, but outside the third round, we have basically, uh, let's put some thresholds on this so you could look it up. There are seven players since 2001 to be drafted outside the first three rounds in the NFL draft at running back that have gone on to have at least two top 12 seasons. Aaron Jones is the most recent from 2017, Devontae Freeman from 2014, Lamar Miller from 2012, Arian Foster from 2009, Marion Barber III from 2005, Michael Turner from 2004, and Rudy Johnson from 2001. Now, you might notice that Austin Eckler's name's not on there, because if they didn't play at least at the CFB, the Cursor Conference at minimum, I don't find the data comparable to players coming from the CFB or college football. And so I don't include them in my database. But I did like... Anyway, the point of these seven prospects, the 2.3 average in one of my favorite stats for the position, adjusted yards per team pass attempt, or just saying yards per team pass attempt from now on, 
Only two players are over the average for top 12 prospects. That's Aaron Jones and Michael Turner from 2004. Everyone else is below that 2.3. So you can already see how threshold analysis would have literally removed any possible hit you could have gotten from using data. And number go green analysis would have failed you not just in the abstract, but in reality, if you had at all considered that Aaron Jones's 3.4 made him better than Devontae Freeman's 1.7, then you would have not been possible to hit on either player, or both players at least. Now, ultimately, I want to find a way of finding all of these guys, but I don't think it's possible to find everyone every year. But I don't think data can tell us a way to find everyone every time, because they're all just so different coming from different places. And when you look at threshold analysis, most of the things you're going to accomplish is creating a higher hit rate group that might not be a high hit rate group for the future because it's not predictive in that sense, removing more of the hits along with most of the misses. And so I think it's a better idea to come up with an understanding of what the stats we have are trying to tell us and use that understanding to evaluate a new incoming class. Why was Aaron Jones good? What was telling us that Aaron Jones was good? And how much we should like a player with that type of profile relative to draft capital. Connor from my Discord and, and, and Connor LaPlante and DLF calls this a film scouting, like a spreadsheet film scouting. And I don't mind that. I'm not afraid of being called that. But I think it's context analysis. A number isn't good because it goes green. A number isn't good because it goes above an average. Player is good. If when taking the full balance of his production profile, he seems to have been doing exactly what you would expect a good NFL player to do in that situation and has some level of opportunity to earn volume at the next level, which is obviously a large part of what draft capital is. But with running backs, we can also look at production arcs. We can look at career arcs to understand how they develop into those roles over time because running backs can become immediately effective in fantasy football the minute job opportunities, unfortunately, to describe it that way, become available at the NFL level. And so there's a immediacy to their ability to take advantage of a position should there be an injury or a trade or a transfer or something of that nature. So I don't think data or, or film, frankly, can give us a way or a process that can hit on every prospect every year. And I don't think it can create a way of hitting every prospect that everyone else doesn't know about or the NFL missed outside the first three rounds. I don't think all show up together no matter what we try. So I think the best thing we can do is establish an understanding of which ones we could have known to like a little bit more and try to follow that signal using reasonable understanding and expectations of how good slash productive a player was in college compared to past prospects. So it's Jonathan Taylor, Quiet Weds Lair, not Jonathan Taylor or J.K. Dobbins. Because I honestly think it was fair to consider Clyde Edwards Lair's draft capital in the first round. Now, Jonathan Taylor was taken in the second round, but again, draft capital is important. But when looking at their production, I think it was fair to have Jonathan Taylor and Clyde Edwards Lair at the top based on Clyde Edwards Lair getting a significant advantage with his draft capital but consider Jonathan Taylor above him. And then I put Clyde Ebersler second because draft capital matters. And we should be humble while trying to do better than the NFL, admit that the NFL is ultimately 
doing better than most um, at guessing who's going to be good, and they have control over who gets opportunity, and so it makes sense. It makes sense to me to have Clyde edwards above J.K. Dobbins, even though that's going to be a miss when you compare R-squared rankings or rankings over time, and people are going to beat each other with their hit rates. I think that was fair. I think that's a way of developing a process that's going to get you the right decision more often by admitting to draft capital, or well, not just admitting, hoarding as much information you can about draft capital because it is the most important thing and making an honest judgment about whether a player was productive in college or good compared to a historical average. So Jonathan Taylor manages to beat Clyde Edwards-Lair, but Clyde Edwards-Lair does become part of that top two, top three conversation. You might miss on J.K. Dobbins because you ended up taking Clyde Edwards-Lair, with new names, obviously, but you're not going to miss on Jonathan Taylor for the sake of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, because Jonathan Taylor was just too good with high enough draft capital to compare to a historical average of hits that we would have taken, we would not have taken him below someone, even with first-round draft capital. And so it's developing an idea of how good they were in college that can mitigate differences in their draft capital when necessary. Or in the case of someone like Aaron Jones, it's trying to find a way of highlighting players who should be interesting and range far above what they would the coverage they would normally kick based on their draft capital. So from 2017, one, two, three, four. I have four players, and it's a little unfair to use one because he had significant injury problems. Um, but Dante Foreman, Aaron Jones, Maji Premian, and Calvin uh, Alvin Kamara all reasonably productive when compared to the historical average. That's just my pre-draft model. It put them in a similar range. Aaron Jones was drafted in the fifth round, Samaji P. Ryan drafted in the fourth round, Alvin Kamara in the third, and Dante Foreman in the third. So it's all significant draft capital for running backs at least, but below the fold, as it were, for enticing draft capital. When you looked at their production, Aaron Jones was significantly better in something like adjusted yards per team attempt, and he also had a 12% target share. Alvin Kamara had a 13% target share. The other two were much more runners than they were catchers. They had uh, two and four percent target share for a career average but they also had over two adjusted yards per team pass attempt while Avon Kamara had below two adjusted yards per team pass attempt remembering that the average for a top 12 is 2.3 so I hate reading numbers on a podcast what I'm trying to say is outside of making decisions which we're still going to be wrong you're still going to have to accept Clyde Edwards-Alaire sometimes is going to cripple you because the NFL likes what they do and you have to value that draft capital, it can at least get Jonathan Taylor above him. And in the lower ranks, players that hit outside of expected draft capital hit rates, what we can do is put a fifth round player in league with third round players like Dante Foreman and Alvin Kamara and make decisions about what we prefer in terms of NFL hit rates. And yes, prefer, not predictably, statistically argue hit at this rate or that rate. But all were reasonably productive in adjusted yards per team pass attempt. We're not number going greening, but we do know Aaron Jones was a significantly larger part of the team offense at a much lower conference level. And it puts him in league with these players, even though several were drafted in the third round and he was drafted in the fifth round. That I would definitely hit on Alvin Kamara and definitely hit on Aaron Jones, but it does move someone drafted in the fifth round up into a range of players drafted in the third round and makes him stand out to me. And hopefully that means I hit on the Aaron Joneses a little more often than I would have if I just accounted for draft capital. It's not moving him up to second overall in the class where he probably should have been based on results, 
below Christian McCaffrey. I would put him above Dalvin Cook. We can argue about that. I'm not saying that's a film grade, but in terms of fantasy results, I'd much prefer to have had Aaron Jones over time than Dalvin Cook over time. But I probably have to, I probably have to bring value into that conversation. So maybe that's a little unfair to say because Dalvin Cook was phenomenal in terms of the ceiling fantasy advantage he was providing during those three top twelve of seasons versus Aaron Jones. You see, where riffing a podcast doesn't always work out. I'm going to move off this conversation, but. It can highlight players that should be more significantly interesting versus their draft capital. It won't create a perfect ranking system. It won't mean you draft them every time in the second round versus everyone else, but it will highlight them for you. Now, with all that being said, let me run through at least the top 12 ranks for the 2024 pre-draft class and why I have them ranked in certain tiers, at least. If you want to check out my rankings for this year's class, it's available on my rank sheet, which you can find through, you know, DMing me or checking out Patreon or just, you know, ask me on any of the social medias. I'll be happy to share or talk to me live on the Dynasty Grind every Wednesday at 9.30 on YouTube and Twitch, where I, me, Zach Reed, and Dynasty Outhouse, when available, uh, will answer any question that pretty much comes in. All right, so... 2024 ranks. I have four players in my second tier running back. I think this class starts in tier two. I don't think there's a clear Jonathan Taylor in this class. A perfect profile, playing at the right conference level. Um, I don't think we really have one. They all have somewhat warts. It starts in the second tier. That does not mean there's not a Devontae Freeman hiding in this class, but it does tell you you should be looking for a hidden gem like a Devontae Freeman. Freeman, well, not so much hidden, but someone that doesn't, their numbers don't go green, but are definitely capable of putting up top 12 seasons, multiple top 12 seasons, that doesn't easily stand out compared to tier one prospects like Gibbs, like Robinson, like Jonathan Taylor. I don't think that those are the profiles we're really looking for in this class because they don't really exist, which is why my tier two have profiles that are not quite as good as that tier one, but are coming from significant conferences. Players with statistics or numbers that met, that compare more broadly to a Jonathan Taylor, to a Brijon Robinson or Jameer Gibbs, but play at slightly worse conference levels in terms of expected draft capital and also just hit rates, tend to filter into my tier three and tier four. I like their profiles a little bit more as they stand. They're a little bit more Aaron Jones-ish relative to lower conference levels. Now, there are a few players I haven't managed to profile yet or look through. Marshawn Lloyd is someone that the Dynasty Grind tells me I should look at. And his, I, I can't give you a quick answer on him. His career path is relatively awkward when looking at historical examples. I know that right off the bat because his best year comes from a different team that he was playing on. And, and I really have to dig into him. So I'm not saying I've ranked everyone yet. And there might be someone who filters into one of these tiers at some point. But that's essentially how I'm doing it. I'm looking for players that measure fairly well coming from decent drafted conferences or decent competitive levels, if you prefer to think about that, and bucketing them in tiers based on how drafted they are and how good their profile is. So tier one is players that look solid, really good prospects coming from significant conference levels, but they're all tier two because they don't stand above the fold in those type of conference levels. Tier three is they stand above the fold, but there's some concern over their draft capital and whether the numbers actively reflect 
what they're capable of doing in the NFL because of where they were playing or the career path and where they were playing, which bleeds us into tier four, where I have more concerns that the numbers don't actively reflect how good they are on an NFL scale, or there's some oddness to their career path in that, you know, they're not easily comparable to historical average. Right now, I only have five tiers of players, so it's just that on a scale. But let me get into the ranks. First, and tier two is really just all one rank, but still, I put Blake Corum at the top of my running back ranks. Again, because there's relatively few concerns. This class starts at Tank Bigsby from last year and goes down, but there's plenty of upside, like I said, like a Devontae Freeman level upside in this class. Corum and a couple of other profiles, actually, are fairly similar. He spent two years in Michigan with a 1.6 and 1.7 adjusted yards per team pass attempt below their average for a top 12 prospect in their best season, but significant enough to say that he was holding a full running back role for players going on into the NFL. He was good in college, not phenomenally good. He's tier two, not tier tier one. He actually played in the same team as Jacques Charbonnet, I'm pretty sure, who peaked on that team at a similar number, around 1.6-1.7 in 2019. Corum has relatively low receiving game usage with only 5% of targets or less in his time in college, but he did hit 9% per game as a running back 2 in 2021, and he was over 2 targets a game in each season until 2023. He can catch the ball a little bit and he'll play that role in the NFL should he find opportunity. His yards after contact and elusive marks are just above average, but he was also scoring above average per game in age-adjusted production, another statistic I like to look at because it's conference relative, and fantasy points are in itself a model of how effective a player is at playing what we need them to play when they go to the NFL level for fantasy football. So his profile has no real warts, but no real highlights. I find him one of the most solid coming from Michigan, with significant expectations of some level of top three draft capital and a chance to earn opportunity at the NFL level, and I definitely think he can walk into the right spot to find fantasy relevance. The second ranked player I have in this year's class is Jonathan Brooks. I actually like his profile a lot better. He has some ACL concerns, having recently um, had an ACL injury, and we could be looking a year out before he actually gets a full season of NFL play, which is also going to affect what NFL teams think. However, his profile as it stands is better than most in Tier 2, just on a one-to-one basis. He's a borderline running back one profile if it wasn't for that injury, and if his numbers were... He might hit the bottom of Tier 1 if I was being more generous. He has 2.9 targets per game as a ceiling, or 8.5% of the team's targets in target share. Again, he's only 1.7 adjusted yards per team pass attempt in his best season. He doesn't wow off the bat, but with that target share... Coming from that conference, I think he would be interesting in the bottom of tier one if we're, if every class was one class, um, and if we were being generous. But with that ACL injury, I'm, I'm less prone to be generous. He definitely does have top 12 potential as a medium outcome rather than a ceiling outcome with someone like Crum. His elusiveness ratings and yards after co- contact marks are both above average, and he's doing it with more volume than players that we mentioned previously in past draft classes who did well, but didn't quite have this level of running back one volume. It's also suggested that they probably won't look too shabby when you're watching the games because of those per-touch performance metrics. Bajorn Robinson, he ain't, but he's what we hoped Roshan Johnson would be without Bajorn Robinson if he got more volume in the NFL. 
Braylon Allen is third for me. I think he's second overall in consensus and DLF. I like Allen quite significantly. I'm putting him in the first tier for this class, second tier overall as a prospect. I'm putting him third mainly because if there's a value difference between Allen and Brooks and Crum, I'll take the value difference. Because Allen's profile looks like Crum's. Crum? Crum's. I'm not sure how to say that name yet. Um... He probably, I'm probably being a little unfair because he's coming from Jonathan Taylor's team, not three years earlier. And Jonathan, as a direct comparison, you kind of see the difference between a tier one and a tier two prospect. Braylon Allen was the running back one for that team with significant volume, but just less than Jonathan Taylor every year in every way, if you know what I mean. But he's definitely a really good prospect in this year's class to be that top 12 producer. He spent three years as a running back one for Wisconsin, again, like Jonathan Taylor. But when compared directly, he's just a lower level prospect or lower level volume player with worse performance metrics. But they're still all good. JT occupied 55% of the team's rushing attempts, for example, for two years. And 48% of the team's rushing attempts in his first season. That's higher than Allen's best season at 45%. Again, that direct comparison is a little unfair, but it does, for me, highlight the difference between a Tier 1 and a Tier 2 prospect. We see a similar thing when we use adjusted yards per team pass attempt, or yards per team pass attempt, where Jonathan Taylor, as a Tier 1 prospect, was over two adjusted yards per team pass attempt every year of his college career. Whereas Allen's height is, again, in that 1.6 to 1.8 range. Good, solid, definitely running back one in college, and compares well to historical prospects going into the NFL, but it doesn't blow you away. It's not that the number doesn't go green. <clears throat> it's not that the number doesn't go green, it's that without other reasons to like him, he certainly doesn't compare directly to a Jonathan Taylor or a Bajon Robinson or Jameer Gibbs going into the NFL. He was less of his college team's offense than most prospects who go on to do well, but it's within range and certainly enough to call him a running back one potential prospect. His target share is over 6% for two years and had a ceiling of 2.7 targets per game in his final season, which is solid as well. He's above average in the receiving role for most prospects, especially this year, but definitely not impressive compared to the tier one prospects we've seen last year or previous years. His yards after contact and elusive ratings are all solid and over the average, so he's doing fairly well on a per-touch basis. But again, not so far over the average that it makes him, that it obfuscates his lower volume metrics compared to Tier 1 prospects. But again, it's not that they don't go green, it's when you combine the whole, what you find is a running back 1 profile, who's okay, not phenomenal. Could that have a higher ceiling in the NFL? Yeah, sure. Ultimately, he looks like a really good prospect you'd love to draft as a running back two or three in most classes. Ultimately, he looks like a really good prospect you'd love to draft as a running back three or four in most classes and love to draft as a running back one or two in this class. The fourth and final player I have in tier two for the 2024 class is Trey Benson. I've recently moved him up to tier two after considering his profile a little bit more. Um, There are shades of Carlos Williams. In his team history, comparing him to past players from that team, at least the team he was playing for at, in his like third season, because he played on two different teams himself. But there's also Devontae Freeman and even Dalvin Cook in that team history as well. 
So I think he's somewhere between the two as prospects. And Carlos Williams, if you don't remember, was a fifth-round prospect who through half a season seemed to have top-12 potential in the Buffalo Bills and then seemed to fade somewhere during the offseason and never get back to having opportunity on the Bills because of some, maybe some offseason drama and just didn't fulfill any of that promise in, in his second season. So that might have just been a half-a-season example. But in terms of the team history... Um, Benson's production looks somewhere between Carlos Williams and Dalvin Cook, but definitely doesn't look like a Dalvin Cook tier one prospects, but it's between the two trying to compare them. He did have 6% target share in his final season, which is above average, though never more than two targets per game, suggesting that he's a viable pass catcher, but not someone that dominates the receiving game like an Alvin Kamara or an Aaron Jones um, playing where they play. Playing for two years at Florida as a running back one, got 30% of the rushing attempts, and a final year rushing dominator of 48% when you include touchdowns. Overall, looks like a solid tier two running back, will have to hope finds draft capital or a path to playing time, but should be expected to be a solid fantasy outcome if he finds both. In my third tier running back prospects, I've got two players so far, and that's uh, Ray Davis or Roman Davis, depending on which site you're reading it on. I think Ray Davis is going to be the one he's more commonly referred to. I don't know what he prefers to be referred to yet. I've just looked at his numbers. Um, And also Marquez or Bucky Irvin. Ray Davis and Bucky Irvin. It's probably how they're going to be referred to on most fantasy sites. Both of these guys have full running back one tier one profiles, but come from lower drafted prospects. Ray Davis had over 50% of the rushing attempts each of his last two seasons, one for Vanderbilt and one for Kentucky, which is technically the SEC, to be fair. 1.7 and 2.5 adjusted yards per team pass attempts in each of those seasons with over three targets per game. That's over 10% of targets in each of those seasons. That's all good stuff, and his ceiling numbers in his final year and yards after contact and the loosened rating are all above average for a top 12 prospect. But the catch, as I've mentioned, is that he was doing it for borderline CFB teams in the SEC after elevating from the American Conference where he played for Temple for two years. Elevating is a good thing, and his performance once he elevated is also impressive. And I'm not scared of a 24-year-old prospect, especially if they're good. Hello, Najee Harris. But... I have to point out that his otherwise good profile is a little more sussy because it's coming from a lower drafted conference with this weirder, longer career arc. We're going to have to see what the NFL thinks. But if he finds a path to opportunity and touches at the NFL level, his performance in college suggests he could be good, but it's not as suggestive of being good as a tier two or tier one prospect because he where because of where he was playing. We just don't know if those performance metrics match up, match up as well, playing for such low-level SEC teams and before that Temple. It's the same with Bucky Irvin. He played for Minnesota in the Big Ten, where 15% of running backs are drafted from, before ending up as the running back one for Oregon for two years in the Pac-12, where only about 6% of running backs are drafted from. So he moved to a lower drafted conference before he really showed out. And that's somewhat, that's, that's the question mark on the profile here. Irvin hit 1.8 and 2.1 adjusted yards per team pass attempt and over 8% of targets, one year below three targets per game, and one year above four targets per game. In other words, he was more he was above average he was above averagely involved receiver 
in each of those seasons. He was in a heavy split with Noah Whittington in year one and Jordan James only carrying the uh, the following year, only carrying the ball 30% of both of the team's attempts in each season and then 42% of the time after that. But with his target share, I think that he looks like a solid running back one potential workload in the modern NFL. On top of which, his yards after contact and Elizabeth's ratings were all above average for running backs who go on to do well in the NFL. 4.0 yards after contact, which is his best season, is well above the average of 3.7 top 12 prospects and 148 Elizabeth's best rating versus the average of 95 for top 12 prospects. That specifically stands out. But again, it's on lower level volume, so it's less impressive, I think, than Davis. There's a lot more to consider, but he's got an interesting looking profile overall that I'm currently putting sixth overall in tier three. We'll have to see what the NFL thinks, as with all these players. In my fourth tier, I currently have three players I all think are interesting, but they have even more concerns both on where they were playing and that they don't quite meet the thresholds for a running back one profile. Audric Estime, or Estime, not sure how to say any of these names yet. I have to start listening to other people to find out. I mean, liking Kyron Williams worked out eventually <laughs> from the same team. Lower expectation of draft capital, of course. Aldrich had two adjusted yards per team tass- pass attempt each of his final seasons. And while he wasn't involved in the receiving game as much as Kyron, barely 5% of target shares compared to two years over 10%, which is why we really like Kyron Williams back when... He also graded out higher in yards after contact and elusive ratings for PFF grades, with similar peak rushing dominator of 61% versus Williams 66%. In other words, this guy is less of a receiver than Williams, was just as dominant on the same team several years later because of the amount he was involved in the rushing game and rushing touchdowns. Unfortunately, the receiving part of the profile was the most enticing part of Williams' pro- uh, profile that we, he could find pass to opportunity through multiple avenues in the NFL, even if it took time, which he eventually did. But I think Estime or Estimi or however you correctly say this man's very normal name and I suck at saying names, is a decent steal or sleeper category of player that I've put in the fourth tier for his overall production on this lower conference team. The eighth ranked running back I have in the same tier as Carson Steele. He's been dubbed the most interesting man in college football, and I'm not sure about that, but it is an interesting rookie profile and a junior rookie profile heading into the NFL and where most of the players in most of the interesting tiers at most positions tend to have extra age than we're used to. That does make Carson Steele stand out a little bit. He decided not to play one extra year after elevating and playing only a couple years. Anyway, the profile essentially says... Um, he spent two years as running back one for Ball State in the MAC conference. Not a great conference to come from, but it's not terrible. Where he was predictably dominant in volume for someone who's going to get some level of NFL interest. You should be dominant in the MAC conference. He had 84% rushing dominator in his final season there and 24 points per game. Both of which really impressive even for the MAC conference. When he elevated to UCLA in the Pac-12 which isn't a great conference, but it's still where 6% of running backs have been drafted from from the last few years versus 2% in the MAC conference. He ran into TJ Harden, a second-year player, also looking to elevate himself in terms of the team's role. And they essentially split the role down the middle, both in the receiving and the rushing game. Harden getting a slightly higher share of the team's receiving touchdowns, but less 
of the receiving yards, and they split the targets down the middle about 5% each. It's a very heavy split, even compared to the previous year on this team. So it's not a team issue that they usually split the role this deeply. These two players actively split the role themselves. It's not an ideal profile, but notably, his yards after contact and elusiveness ratings are both solid, even after elevating into a higher conference. And relative to the level of volume he was playing at, are still pretty good. Ultimately, there's upside in this profile, I think. And once again, we have to wait to see what the draft thinks and what NFL teams are going to consider giving him in terms of initial opportunities when he enters the NFL. He's not an absolute given or expectation, but clearly an interesting prospect. The ninth-ranked player I have in the 2024 pre-draft class at running back position is Frank Gore Jr. This is one I really have to squint at as well. But it's a legacy kind of a class. There's a lot of juniors of previously dominant NFL players. And so, you know, that's fun. He spent four years as a running back one for Southern Mississippi in the Cursor Conference, which is like death to fantasy football potential. But he was also a lower or a smaller part of that offense in Southern Mississippi than Ito Smith. Who? Well, yeah, that's kind of the point. He wasn't exactly dominating studs. He was being dominated by not not studs, in terms of overall opportunity in the game. That's all bad. But he did have better performances than Ito in yards after contact and looseness ratings. And in this class, at this point in my ranks, it's hard to ignore a guy who had over 47% of the rushing attempts for each for two years and a target share over 7% every year and a peak of 8% when he hit three receptions a game, which is a threshold I like to look for. I don't hate it. In my fifth tier, I currently have two players, Myron Williams and Jace McLean, ranking 10th and 11th in this class. Myron Williams is incredibly elusive, according to his PFF grades, in his single season as a running back one for Ohio in 2022. But his elusiveness rating, but elusiveness rating, again, to mention numbers don't always go green, hated Ezekiel Elliott and J.K. Dobbins. So let's not put too much weight into that, but it does stand out by the time we get this deep into this class. Myron Williams becomes interesting because of it. His yards after contact was also above the average of top 12 prospects, but that is only so interesting at a lower volume level for the same reason. Williams was a below average part of the team relative production. Travian Henderson had 1.7 in 2023, 2.3 in 2021, and Trey Sermon had 1.9 in 2020 as a running back one for this team. And Myra Williams was below all of, all three of those marks. His target share was never over 3%. But based on his rushing ability, he seems like an explosive player. The NFL might have some interest in getting him into certain roles, which could have fantasy viability. Jace McLean is the last ranked running back I'm going to talk about today. He's ranked 11th. Playing in Alabama does no end of good for his model score. But we have to, you know, squint at that. I don't think that's real. His yards after contact is decent, above average for NFL hits, but his team relative volume, essentially he's being elusive or getting lots of yards after contact, but doing it on a, such a low volume that I don't think it's real. And because he's playing for Alabama, it gets an extra boost because I do try to predict some level of draft expectation in that model. And I think his model score of like 10.1 is grossly exaggerated, but I'm ranking him because I'm ranking him. And his team relative volume or just outright rushing share, is below average. John Robin, Brian Robinson, for example, a decent prospect, had 1.8 on this team. Najee Harris had 2.6. 
And McLean is down there at 1.3. So it's like half a decent prospect score from this particular team. His target share is less than two targets a game each season and 6% ceiling. Ultimately, he seems like a draft rate boosted, I don't know, he deserves a spot on your roster outside of we should always try and stack up as many running backs as we can, especially if they find some level of draft, draft capital. And that's it. That's all the prospect profiles I've been able to run through for the 2024 running back class so far. Like I said, the next guy I'm going to look at um, is actually Marshawn Lloyd. I think he's got a remarkably interesting profile, but it's not one that's easy to compare to one-to-one. I really need to dig into it. But he's the next guy I would check out. And someone I definitely think is going to be ranking above the fifth tier, at least, um, for this year's class. So he's going to jump some of the names I've already mentioned here. If you're interested, again, in any of my ranks or my data, data especially is free, pinned to my Patreon timeline, pinned to my Twitter timeline, pinned to my Threads timeline, now that you can pin things there, um, or, again, you can talk to me on the Dynasty Grind live every week along with Zach Reed and Dynasty Outhouse, who are actually fun to talk to as well. Sorry for the delay in some of these episodes and some of my content this offseason. I'm really struggling to find a rhythm to my content production with my new job, but we will get back into it. And luckily, the one thing we do know about the offseason is that we have some free time here. We have some time to explore some new ideas and hopefully give me a chance to find a new and better schedule to keep up my content production. Um, But yeah, hope to talk to you again next week. Hope to see you on the Dynasty Grind sometime. Thanks very much for checking out the episode. Yeah. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, play run fold, so. Jake on the table and Nate on the place, no. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Picking my nose, don't really know if I like that. Picking their brains, got their lanes, but I like that. Picking these guys, all of these times, all of these nice stats. Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight back and forth. There is no order, they disorder more and more because the players ain't no older. They some hoarders or some mortars, dropping bombs without no borders. They got that I like mortar, peak grinding numbers like molars. I don't know anymore, I am at a crossroads. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfolds, so. Jake on the table and they on the place, though. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical. Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfolds, so. Jake on the table and they on the place, though. Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical.